grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good afternoon, everybody. How's everybody doing? I hope you said fine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're doing an afternoon show today. I've got a great guest tonight. I'm so today. I'm so excited. Oh, look, everything came up. Nothing crashed tonight. Ah, okay. So far, it's good. I keep saying tonight because I'm used to being on the evening. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. That's just the last of my Halloween candy. Based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state, and that means we can help you. It might take us a couple hours to get to you, but we can help you out if you have something going on. Anyway, if you're watching from Facebook today, and uh, you're on one of my many Facebook pages, which includes the California Haunts pages, the California Haunts Ghostly Events, and my personal page, and you like what you see today, please be sure to like and follow, because I'm always looking for followers. Try and get that button going right, get that momentum. If you're watching from YouTube today, same thing. Uh, there's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner with a magnifying glass and uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on. That is our mascot. If you click on that ghost, the subscribe button will pop up. We've got more than 450 videos sitting over on YouTube, and they're all different topics because, you know, because I'm a journalist. Journalists like don't like to just sit on one topic, right? I, I enjoy paranormal and all that, but I also like doing different things like today's topic, right? Ancient Egypt, wow, okay? So... I'm sure if you go over on our YouTube site and, and start perusing around, you're going to see uh, some different things that, that will interest you. All right. Also, there's a community page over at YouTube. If you look at the, uh, the, the, the heading buttons, I call them buttons. I'm old. Uh, if you look at the heading buttons on, on the YouTube page, there's a thing called community. You can go over there, and I've got short messages about the show and different details. And uh, sometimes there's even behind-the-scenes stuff that I talk to about with guests. Okay. So check that out. And again, if you are watching, you know, this show, please be sure to share it if you like what you see. You know, maybe you've got some people sitting around the, sitting around your house in a back room somewhere, you know. Hey, this show's pretty good. Why don't you come check it out? Just share the show with, with everyone. You know, more, so far, it's been three years of do, doing this format. And in that three years, we have more than tripled our viewership. So that's because of you out there sharing and sharing and letting people know in word of mouth. Anyhow. Now, I can shut up about that. Anyhow, my guest today, Ann Williams, is an archaeologist. And uh, sent me a great book. I mean, this book she sent me was spectacular. A nice photo book about uh, ancient, you know, uh, ancient goodies. My, my mouth is like. But uh, it reminded me of going to see King Tut's treasures when I was like 10 years old. My first trip over with my brother. My, my, my brother was an archaeology uh, major, and so was his girlfriend. And so they took me to San Francisco with them for the first time that King Tut's treasures came. And I remember going through the line, not really grasping what it was, but I knew it because I saw all the gold stuff, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. That got me into to studying all this stuff. And then I started reading, you know, I started reading all the accounts of how they found King Tut's treasure and all that in the Sphinx, you know, and all this and as I've gotten older, I've gotten really, really into it. So much so that, although I don't collect Egyptian um, and antiquities, I do collect Greek and Roman antiquities. So I have some of those in my house, in, in the cabinet. So, I mean, it really set the fire for me, you know. Uh, my brother's girlfriend, at the time when she graduated college, actually got an offer to go work with, with the famous Dr. Leakey. But she never did. So, you know, that, that, that's where they were at on, on the scale at, at, uh, at uh, Sacramento State University. But anyway, I'm excited. And um, we'll I'll, I'll let Ann tell you about herself. And uh, it's going to be an audio-only interview, just to let you guys know. But I will have some graphics up here, too. So anyway, let me bring her in, and away we go. Maybe. Oh, hello. Hi. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? God, I am so excited. I love this stuff. <laughs> this is great. That book that Holly sent. Man, what a book. All I do is look at the pictures. That is wonderful. 
<laughs> wow. I was really, uh, uh, you know, I worked on this thing for months. And um, still, when it came in the mail and I opened up the box and took the book out of the box, I thought, wow, you know, this really is nice. It's big, it's fat, it's full of great photographs. But I would also say, you know, I think it has some really great stories to yes. tell in it. And, you know, so it does two things. You can page through and just look at the eye candy, but you can also sort of sit down and read it. Um, and I've, I've put it together so you could sit down and read for, you know, two, three, four minutes um, when you have something to, to do between task one and task two. <laughs> um, so that is Treasures of Egypt that you yep. see on the right. It's Treasures of Egypt, a legacy and photographs from the pyramids to Cleopatra. Um, the other book that I worked on came out at the end of last year. It's called Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs, also a National Geographic publication. It is 100 of the most spectacular archaeological discoveries ever made according to me. Um, and uh, I, I, again, I put it together for people uh, so they could read it and, and, and just have quick takes. You can sit down with that book, read something for five minutes. That's all it'll take for you to go through a chapter and then go off and do something else. Absolutely. And like I said in my intro, for people that haven't seen Ted's Treasure, or parts that so it's not even the whole treasure, you know, the parts that, that they release out to the public for a 10 to nine or 10 year old to go in and be so impressed. I mean, it's something. Yes. Uh, those artifacts, when they toured the United States and other places around the world, I mean, they really were inspirational for many people. Uh, many people have told me that they remembered going to see those exhibits. And, um, and really, you know, I, I love to think about those very beautiful things as ambassadors for the place and time that ancient Egypt was. Mm -hmm. um, they, they really, you know, they speak to the people who see them. And, and you can, you know, it's like, these books, you can you can come to them from different angles at different levels. You know, mm -hmm. you go to an exhibit like that and just enjoy the bling for the fact that it's bling. Right. Um, and I've got to say that the time of Tutankhamun was one of the high points of ancient Egyptian civilization. Um, so the artists were working at the absolutely top of of their craft. And I mean, th there are not goldsmiths working today who are better goldsmiths than the ancient Egyptians back then. Um, so you, you can enjoy those beautiful things just as beautiful things. But the more you know, I think the more you want to know. And so it is really fun when you go to an exhibit like that and you know a little bit because then you look at a piece and you say, ooh, I know what that is and I know what it represents and I know how it fits into this great puzzle that is the life and times of King Tutankhamun. Well, I even went, um, was it four or five years ago, six maybe, when it came back around and, uh, it was just as impressive, but like you say, I had done my, you know, at that time I had done my, my, my reading, you know, so I knew what that stuff was and that made it, it made it even better. Yeah. Well, I, I remember those artifacts that toured. Yeah. It was, um, it was, um, maybe, it was maybe a, a little more than a decade ago yeah. um, because I, I actually saw that exhibit in Switzerland, um, believe it or not. Um, but, yeah, I mean, th those were, if memory serves, pieces that were a little more personal. Mm -hmm. In other words, I, I think it would be highly unlikely for the mask of Tutankhamun to travel again. Right. You could just imagine the insurance in premiums on something like that would be astronomical, just impossible to, to cover. Um, 
But there are other things that can travel and, you know, and probably maybe will in the future. Um, I would also say that the one thing that we are all waiting for is the opening of the Grand Egyptian Museum. It is a museum right on the Giza Plateau. So you walk up to the front of it and you sort of look off to the left and there are the pyramids of Giza. I mean, it's right there all in the same place that everybody can visit together. It has been a decade in the making and it is getting close to being open. Um, not quite yet, but I'm, I'm babbling on about this because, you know, not only is it going to be a spectacular facility, it has conservation workshops, it has places for conferences to meet, it's going to be an educational center, in addition to being a state-of-the-art museum. But there is a special suite that has been put together to take all of the more than 5,000 artifacts that were found in King Tut's tomb and bring them together in one exhibit for the first time in a hundred years. Wow. So we are all waiting, all of us, you know, Tut fans, we are all waiting for that museum to open so that we can see all of those things. Now, for your listeners who are interested, there is an online database of King Tut's stuff. It is at the Griffith Institute, the website of the Griffith Institute at Oxford University in the UK. And they have digitized all of the handwritten find cards that Howard Carter, the lead archaeologist, wrote out at the time of discovery. They have also transcribed all of those note cards so that you can not only see the original handwriting but you know if you can't if you can't read Howard Carter's writing you can read what he wrote typed up and there are historic photographs that were taken of the artifacts in black and white at the time it is the most wonderful resource i use it all the time you could just go you know from or you can scroll down from artifact 1 to you know artifact 5000 or you can look for specific things like if you're interested in sandals you can search on the word sandals and it'll bring up every instance of sandal in that database um, it really is quite wonderful. So for, for people who are interested in such things, who have never seen the artifacts in, in person or, or, or want to noodle down a little more deeply mm -hmm. on some of the things that they did see in person, um, th this is a wonderful resource. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I toured Europe and I thought it, it was breathtaking just to go through the castles you know, to see how, how they lived in medieval times. What is it like to go into a pyramid like that, knowing it goes back, that, that, that those things were built just so long ago? Well, King Tut was not built in a pyramid. By the time we get to King Tut, which is called the New Kingdom, it's the 18th dynasty, around about 1330 BC. The ancient Egyptians had given up building pyramids because of course a pyramid says here's a burial probably chock walk full of gorgeous glittering goodies dig here and so they decided that we we think they decided to try to be a little more subtle to try to hide royal burials a little better mm -hmm. so when you're traveling west of the Nile down near Luxor there is a plateau that sort of rises up before you get or as you get to the desert that sweeps westward through Libya, Tunisia, um, um, all the way over to Morocco. And that rising up is a great cliff. In other words, so you have the Nile. You have to imagine you have the Nile, then you go westward and there's the floodplain. So that's pretty green and you see, you know, cattle and people 
riding their donkeys and cultivating fields of alfalfa, which they will then feed their herds. But then you get to the sand and then there's a cliff and that's the desert cliff. And in that cliff are great cracks um, in the Middle East, they're called wadis. And into one of those cracks, the ancient Egyptians of the 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties dug into the stone, carved into the stone, tombs for King Tut and a lot of his relatives and a lot and some of the people who ruled Egypt after him. So during three dynasties, they were hoping to sort of um, hide royal burials there. Now, didn't work out that way. You know, most of, the, most of the burials got looted. But here's the thing. Here's the totally cool thing. And, and this is one of the things that absolutely gives me the shivers. When you're standing outside of this great crack in the desert plateau that we now call the Valley of the Kings, and you look up at the top of the cliff, is a rock formation that is in the shape of a pyramid. Now, it can't be that the ancient Egyptians were unaware of that. In fact, we think that they chose that valley deliberately because there was that pyramid structure that naturally formed pyramid shape above this valley. Now, what gives me the shivers is this is a tradition that had continued on for centuries and centuries. You know, the, the, the first pyramids were built back in the time of, of, um, of, of the third dynasty. And now we're at the 18th dynasty, 19th dynasty, 20th dynasty, many centuries later, and the same traditions continue on. Um, and I find that just so wonderful and so extraordinary. That is. And I can tell you from experience when I, you know, when I started collecting my um, Greek and Roman antiquities, just being able to hold something, you know, have something in your hand from so far back. It's just it, it just it gives you the tingles. It does. Absolutely. One of the really cool moments that that I um, had when I was um a writer at National Geographic magazine. I'm retired now and I've moved on to writing books for National Geographic. But when I was working for the magazine, I was um, I was actually in the Valley of the Kings the night the King Tut was CAT scanned, January 5th, 2005. And in doing the reporting for that story, in addition to being in the Valley of the Kings that night, the photographer Ken Garrett and I did some work in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. And so we connected up with a curator um, who, who showed us, uh, I, I, her name was Nadia Lokma, and she was responsible for restoring some of the model boats that were buried with King Tut in his tomb. But she sort of, you know, at one point sort of looked at us and, you know, crooked her finger to us and said, you know, follow me. And so we went to some back room and she opened up sort of a packing case with drawers that um, I guess had been packed and labeled by Howard Carter himself. And she pulled out one of the drawers and in the drawer were pieces of the gold foil covered leather chariot trappings of King Tut. And she picks up one and puts it right in my hand. And I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, work does not get any better than this. Is this not a moment? So, you know, I have had moments like that. And, um, and it really, it, it ends up giving you a really personal connection with that place, that time, that person. I would say that 
you know, before I did that story, I, I generally knew about ancient Egypt. I was a classical and Near Eastern archaeology major in college. So I, I had some knowledge of ancient Egypt and I had worked on some stories about ancient Egypt for the magazine. But that, but that story really um, animated my interest in King Tut and who he was and why he was important and who came before him and who came after him and how things could have played out differently, which I find um, very fascinating. So I have become a specialist in the time of King Tut. You know, not, I don't have a PhD. It's not a professional thing. This is only from a very amateur point of view. But I find that whole period very fascinating. And of course, I love the bling who doesn't. So, um, so that helps. What do you think is, is, is people's fascination with Tut? Well, I think it is, it, I think it can be many things. I mean, first of all, there is the bling. Um, you know, people see that stuff and I, I, you just cannot take your eyes off it. I, I have seen in person the mask of King Tut quite a number of times. And each time I see it, I stand in front of it and go around the back because it's covered with hieroglyphs on the back. Every time I see it, I just stand there and I, my eyes just almost bug out of my head. Um, it, it is just extraordinarily beautiful. I mean, there's a reason why we put it on the cover of Treasures of Egypt, right? right. Um, so on, on that level, I think, you know, that's sort of the entryway. Um, but then I think... Um, as I as I said before, the more you know about ancient Egypt, the more you want to know. And by that, I mean, there are some ancient cultures that we know a little bit about, but and 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 they're interesting. But you know, I I personally, and I think a lot of people don't find them particularly satisfying or or particularly easy to follow because they're kind of abstract. But in ancient Egypt, we know the names of kings and we know the names of queens and we know who their children were and we know who their viziers were and we know who some of their officials were and we know how they lived. We know how how they traded, what kind of stuff they were trading with their neighbors, with places that were farther away. Um, we know a whole bunch of things. So the more you learn about this, the more the whole history of ancient Egypt, it becomes like an enormous jigsaw puzzle through space and time, through the landscape, through time. And so we are right now in the middle of the excavation season in ancient Egypt. It begins in, you know, about September, goes on till March. Um, you don't really want to work in Cairo in July. I've done it. It's um, extraordinarily sweaty. Most archaeologists try to work, you know, in this window of September to March. And those of us who follow all of this, you know, we're waiting every day. We log on to Facebook. We follow the blogs of excavations in Egypt. And we're waiting for the next discovery to be made. And when it's made, it's like a jigsaw puzzle piece. And we pick it up and we say, aha, I know where that puzzle piece goes. Clack, it goes right here. So that is the next level you know, that people get very interested in. They, they get very interested in following discoveries and following excavations and putting together this great big picture of 3,000 years of pharaonic history. It really is quite extraordinary. <clears throat> now, there's another aspect that is emerging now, which I think is very interesting. The initial pursuit of archaeology in Egypt was an artifact of 
the colonial system. You know, the French were there, the British were there, they were sort of running things. And the time, around about the time that King Tut, King Tut's tomb was found, was when modern Egypt as an independent country was emerging and it was throwing off all of these, you know, colonial shackles. And that means that um, Well, so, so it's a very interesting period in history. Um, if you're interested in, in that sort of thing of, of modern countries emerging out of um, the, the sort of colonial overlay, um, this is a very interesting, you know, time and place in history to view that. When Howard Carter first started to dig in the Valley of the Kings, um, he, 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 he was working for a rich, a wealthy British um, lord, Lord Carnarvon, um, the person who owns the property um, where Downton Abbey was filmed. So, you know, you can conjure up that building in your mind, you know, Lord Carnarvon owned that place. And he and other people sponsored digs in order to find beautiful stuff to, um, to populate their, their estates with. So, you know, they'd invite their friends over for dinner and they'd say, well, you know, look what my dig found last season. You know, isn't this a very beautiful mummy case? What happened with King Tut's tomb is, however, because the political situation was changing um, and uh, the, 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 the rules about the division of artifacts that were found were, were changing. So Lord Carnarvon thought that he would get, you know, probably half of the artifacts that had been found in or the artifacts that, that were contained in King Tut's tomb. I mean, that had been, you know, more or less the structure of the arrangement between um, Egypt and foreign archeologists who were working there. And suddenly because of these political changes, that was no longer the case. Um, plus, you know, nobody could have imagined that a tomb like King Tut's would come to light. So, you know, as, as the glittering golden goodies started to emerge from the tomb, um, Egypt just kind of shook its head and said, uh, you know, you're not getting any of that. So to the Egyptians credit, all of those artifacts are now, as I said, going, they are all in Egypt. They're all going to be together in the Grand Egyptian Museum, the gem. You can just imagine if the, the political situation had been different and Lord Carnarvon had gotten, you know, half or a third or, you know, some of the artifacts from the tomb and then he would have kept some and given people, given some to his buddies at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and some would have ended up in the Louvre and some would have ended up in the British Museum. I mean, it would have been a nightmare um, to, to sort of study the artifacts of King Tut. Um, and so to their credit, the Egyptians made sure that that collection stayed together. So there is that whole political layer that has to do with the colonial time, time um, and that sort of, um, that coming to an end and Egypt emerging as a modern country. And, and that is another level that might draw people in to this, um, to this discovery. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there are lots of reasons why people can come to this, to this discovery. Um, a, a lot of things, if you're interested to sort of dig down into, 
not to be too punny about it, um, and, and learn about, because it really is not only an extraordinary discovery, but really sort of representative of, of, um, of many things. I mean, you know, on just sort of in, in a very basic sense, the mind boggles at what other kings were probably buried with. Yes. Because King Tot, you know, he ruled for 10 years, probably took the throne when he was about nine years old, died when he was 19. Um, you know, he was, of course, I find him one of the most pivotal figures in all of ancient Egyptian history. But the ancient Egyptians probably didn't see him that way. I mean, he was sort of transformative because his... his um, one of his predecessors had sort of the heretic king Akhenaten had sort of set ancient Egypt on its really upside down. And King Tut and his advisors, when Tut came to the throne, he managed to you know, set things back in order to restore what the ancient Egyptians called ma'at, things as they should be. Um, but still, you know, he was he was a child. He was um, well, a teenager anyway, and you know, certainly not like Ramses the Second, who lived for you know decades and decades and fathered probably more than a hundred children, and you know had conquest to the north, conquest to the south. I mean. You, you can't even begin to imagine the kinds of things that Ramses the Second was buried with. So I think, you know, that's another part of the fascination. You you look at what was found in King Tut's tomb, and for us, that is sort of the pinnacle of royal stuff. Um, but you have to remember, there were lots of other kings who were probably buried with a whole lot more. And that, you know, again, that's another one of the things that gives me the shivers. Absolutely. Now, I think a lot of the appeal, too, for his story is that it was tragic. It really was tragic because he, he um, you know, he, 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 well, he tried to father children and those and some of those were, you know, and those were miscarried. You know, right. so his life is just so tragic. And and it's interesting, like you say, that the more you dig, the more you learn. And with him, I think, you know, the research that's been done on him that's what's brought more awareness for people and then they feel for him. I mean, he, he wasn't well either. He had the club foot, you know, and all that was going on with him. Well, yes, 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 yes. And yes, um, he, King Tut lived during a time when it was considered normal for people in the royal family to marry their relatives. Mm -hmm. Now, we think of that these days as something that's kind of icky, um, but from a power standpoint, you can understand that because that does consolidate the power in your family. Um, and But as a result of that, you know, King Tut probably was not, I mean, he probably was the result of, you know, this interbreeding in his family. Um, he was not the most robust person in ancient Egypt. When you look at his mummy today, it is it is really very tiny. You know, he was a, he was a short guy. He was super thin. I mean, even imagining the mummy with some flesh on it. I mean, you know, he was still very slight. Um, so yeah, not, not the healthiest guy. Um, we don't know exactly how he died. Um, there was a theory for some years that, you know, they thought maybe there was great palace intrigue and somebody bonked him on the head and, you know, boom, he was dead. Um, that has been disproven. Probably that bone fragment that people saw from the x-rays in 1968 was just the result of the mummification process that sort of nicked one of his backbones. Um, 
so the 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 likely well so he we we think that he had malaria um which is not surprising everybody lived along the nile probably got you know bitten all the time by mosquitoes so you know poor tutankhamun nebkepure had malaria um and on top of that we think that he had some sort of an accident and he broke one of his legs. I think it's the left leg, but don't hold me to that. Um, I, I didn't you know, review my notes before I, before I signed in here. I think it was the left leg um, and it was broken and probably a compound fracture. And you know, back in those days, they didn't have aggressive antibiotics as right. we do now and infection set in and him probably just a few days i mean poor king tut was dead um so that in itself was very sad um but the other thing that is just enormously tragic is the fact that he was married um his wife was to, was ankasanamun who was one of the six daughters of King Akhenaten and the very now famous Queen Nefertiti. And, you know, he taught was probably her brother or her half-brother. I mean, yeah, it's that whole incest thing that was going on. But, you know, you have to imagine that these were two young people trying to have a family they were teenagers and we fought we have found in king tut's tomb two mummified what we think were stillborn daughters um probably born before term um and so you know evidence that this couple was trying to have a family not only trying to do their king Tot was trying to do his kingly duty. His job as king, his job as pharaoh, was to produce an heir. So he was trying to do that. But, you know, he was a teenager and he was married and he was probably in love with his wife. And this was a young couple who were trying to make a family and they couldn't manage to do it. And you just, you know, forgot all of the pharaonic trappings and forget all of the history. Your heart has to break for this young couple. Um, now, the reason why I think that King Tut is one of the most pivotal people in all of ancient Egyptian history is if he and Ankasanamun had managed to have a healthy baby boy, think how different the rest of ancient Egyptian pharaonic history would have been. Because what happened after King Tut died is there was an old family retainer named Ai who took over the throne, but he was old at that point, ruled for about four years, dropped dead. Well, and then what? You know, he and his family didn't have, he and his wife didn't have any children. Mm -hmm. So it seems one of the major players behind the scenes here, because of course, a nine-year-old King Tut could not have done all of the things that he did to restore ancient Egypt to what it was before the crazy Akhenaten years, right? He had to have had, King Tut had to have had um, very powerful advisors who were very close to him. So I was one of them. Um, and we think there were family connections there. But another person who was very influential at this point was somebody we think was a military general and his name was Horemheb. So after I drops dead, Horemheb takes over. Now, Horemheb and his wife also could not have children, but Horemheb did something that was very interesting and that really um, changed the history of ancient Egypt. We think he adopted an old army buddy um, to be his heir. And the army buddy's name is Ramses. 
Wow. I didn't so know that. Then begins a new dynasty um, with the 19th dynasty. We call it the Ramesside period. So you have Ramses I, who had a son, Seti I, who had a son, Ramses II. So Ramses II is Ramses the Great. Um, some people think that he's the Pharaoh in the Bible. Whether or not you believe that, um, Ramses II was was certainly a figure who was larger than life. He had an ego that spanned the entire country from Alexandria all the way down to Abu Simbel. I mean, everywhere you go in Egypt now, you run into statues and reliefs and monuments created by Ramses II, or stolen from previous kings and adapted to Ramses the Great with Ramses cartouche and blah, blah all over them. Um, so some days it seems when you're traveling in Egypt that every day is Ramses the second day. Um, my point being here that if Tutankhamun and Ankhesenamun had managed to have a healthy baby boy, you would never have had that reign. You would never have had the 19th dynasty. The rest of ancient Egyptian history would probably have played out very differently. And the intriguing thing is to wonder how that would have played out. You know, so for me, King Tut is a really pivotal figure in ancient Egyptian history. I find it fascinating because you, you, you know, the archaeologists, the Egyptologists are able to piece all this stuff together because, I mean, we absolutely knew nothing about these people. Well, uh, that, that is one of the fun things about studying history, um, about being engaged in archaeology as a profession or even as a hobby, you know, as I said, it's like a big jigsaw puzzle and you, you, you take the pieces and you put it all together and, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, the pieces sort of seem to fit. And then you realize as you know, a couple of years later, you know, that piece you thought that fit over here, that's eh, not fitting so well. Let's move it to another part of the puzzle, um, which is, you know, a whole, whole different thing. Um, a whole, a whole different aspect of being engaged in this um, sweep of history. Do you think, because I mean, it's such a vast area, do you think that they're going to continue to, to find more artifacts? Oh, of course. Sahi Hawass, who is one of the great spokesman for ancient Egypt. He, he's the man in the hat that you see on TV. Um, you know, he has said many times, you put a shovel into the sand of Egypt and you turn up artifacts. Now, how many artifacts are, are waiting underneath the sand? Nobody knows. How, what percentage of the ancient stuff has been found? Nobody knows. I mean, but... You know, Egypt is so, so rich. I mean, you know, you have to remember every time you visit this history, it is 3,000 years long. So, you know, think about the United States. It's what, 200 some years old? I mean, you know, just think about 3,000 years. And, you know, for me, I mean, it just really blows my mind every time I think about it. Absolutely. How deep are some of these artifacts? I mean, obviously, you know, with, with history and the way stuff piles up and whatnot, you have to dig down to get to them. So how deep are these holes that they're having to go into? Well, sometimes they're, they're pretty shallow. Um, I have been at sites um, where looking at the, what has come to light, uh, it was just almost right there. Um other things are pretty deeply buried, and and um, in in the case of tombs, sometimes tombs are dug very deeply. Um, I, I was just in Egypt a couple of weeks ago, and just 
you know, visited Saqqara, for instance, which is one of the um, part, part of the great cemetery that was associated with the city of Memphis um, near Cairo. And, um, uh, you know, you visit some tombs and you just, you go down, 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 and down. Um, so uh, the, the, the answer is it, it varies. One, one of the really interesting things, I think, is that, of course, a lot of remains of the past are, under, are, are surely underneath urban centers like Alexandria and Cairo. But this presents an opportunity um, because inevitably a building will come to the, a modern building will come to the end of its useful life and it will be torn down. And before the next building is built up, there is an opportunity to investigate what is underneath. Um, and sometimes really cool things come to light. Like one of the things that I just visited in Alexandria was a Roman era theater. And it was, it was just there, you know, like underneath modern stuff. And, uh, you know, it's now excavated and you can visit it. And, you know, there was a theater and there were baths and, um, you know, the whole sort of Roman complex. But, you know, there's surely more stuff like that underneath um, a lot of the um, modern buildings of urban Alexandria. That's absolutely fascinating. But, you know, and the way I think, you know, with the winds and the sand and all that blowing through, that there's got to be so much more, you know, in the ground that, that, that you guys aren't aware of. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and you know, you, I mean, you hear the phrase shifting sands, mm -hmm. um, but you don't really appreciate it until you're there. I mean, when, when you're traveling around Egypt, I mean, you have sand everywhere. <laughs> You have sand on your shoes, you have sand on your pants, you know, you have sand on your jacket, you know, you have sand on your hands. I mean, you know, it's just, it goes everywhere. You, you, you really don't appreciate it until you're there. Can you tell me the first time you went to that area, what, what, what was it like for you? Well, now let me think. It was in 1998, and I was actually attending a travel writers conference in Jerusalem with my husband. And we had an opportunity to travel after the convention and go first to Jordan, which we loved. We got to see Petra. We got to see Jerash. We got to see Amman, you know, back before it became the, you know, great large, sprawling city that it is today. Um, and then after Jordan, we went to Egypt. And that was just so cool because back in those days, well, Cairo, I think in modern times anyway, has always been chaotic. And so, um, but it was wonderfully chaotic because you'd be, you know, driving in the middle of a whole bunch of traffic, um, but in the middle of the traffic would be like three camels. Um, so it was wonderfully evocative and to, to be able to go to the Egyptian museum near Tahrir Square in downtown Cairo and just see so many spectacular artifacts in one place. I mean, it was just jaw dropping, you know, to go to the Valley of the Kings. Um, it was just extraordinary. And so every time I have been to Egypt, I have done something different, um, seen new things. Um, one of the things, for instance, my husband and I went as tourists again, maybe about 10 years ago. And I had, by that point, gone to Egypt a number of times for work. And when you're working with archaeologists, you, you get up at zero dark 30 because they begin early go out, dig, you know, have breakfast, you know, work then until sort of mid-afternoon, and then everybody's fried, and they need to come back and process artifacts and enter everything they found into their database. So they start super, super early. And so for all of these work trips, 
I would be in a hotel on the edge of the Nile in Luxor, you know, looking out, having my breakfast, thinking about the work that I had to do that day and watching the hot air balloons float over the Valley of the Kings and the whole area around there. And I just thought to myself, you know, one of these days I hope life brings me the opportunity to do that, to, to not be working at, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And sure enough, my husband and I went, I think it was maybe about 10 years. In fact, it was. It was 10 years ago. It was the... Um, it was January of 2012, uh, a year after the Arab Spring. And when we got to Luxor, our guide said, you know, this is not part of your tour um, ticket, but if you would like, um, you can pay some extra money and go on a hot air balloon ride. Oh. My husband and I could not put our hands in the air fast enough. <laughs> Um, so that we did have that experience. So, uh, you know, e e every time I go to Egypt, there's there's something new. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there is so much. You can, you can go back and go back and go back and every time see something you haven't seen before. And for people that have never been on a hot air balloon, I have, and obviously you have, they have no idea how quiet it is. It is except for the sound of that propane otherwise yeah. it's just like so incredible it is wonderful really wonderful i mean you know floating over that area of egypt is fabulous i've also done it in australia um it's in a big hot air balloon basket and the and the top of the basket um, was covered in suede, so you know, it was lovely to hang on to. And there was some guy, I think maybe he owned the balloon company for some reason, and he was flying with us, and it was at dawn, which is where the kangaroos, when the kangaroos come out, and he, and he tapped me on, he was standing by next to me, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he pointed, and there were all the roos hopping all over the Australian landscape. I just, you know, um, one of those extraordinary moments that you, know, you just never forget. Absolutely. It's good to, I mean, it, it's really hard in my heart to hear, you know, good for my heart to hear that they're building that museum, you know, to put touch stuff in there, because I mean, that the stuff has to be seen, but at the same time, it has to be in a secure spot too. Well, that that was part of the plan um, all along. Um, and and again, to their credit, the Egyptians are building a lot of new museums. There is the National Museum of the Egyptian Civilization, and you probably saw some months ago the parade of the mummies as they were taken from the Egyptian Museum in downtown Cairo to this brand new state-of-the-art museum. So there are, there are a number of these brand new, wonderfully designed museums that, are, that have been conceived to um, not only protect the artifacts in the way they should be protected, but present them in a way that is very helpful for people who are visiting the museums. And in fact, the, the latest thing that I have seen, I have a, a friend who's in, well, I have a number of friends who are in Cairo right now, but one of them has just posted some photographs um, today or yesterday from the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. And now that some of the artifacts have been taken out to the Grand Egyptian Museum, the gem, there's a little bit more space. And so they are trying to bring that grand old museum, um, which I personally love because I think it's very beautiful, but they are, they are reconfiguring exhibits and putting in better signage and putting in better lighting and putting artifacts in new cases. And, um, and this friend of mine took some photographs as examples and say, see, you know, you can see this artifact now has been put in context 
by the way in which it's displayed now. Um, so there's a lot going on in Egypt to, um, to modernize museums, to present artifacts in a smart way um, that will engage visitors, but also protect the artifacts. Um, yeah, it's 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 actually a, in in many ways a very exciting time for archaeology in Egypt. What do you say to someone that's just starting to go to college and maybe wants to do this? Well, that is the subject for another show. <laughs> no, I, I I think it's it's if you can do it. It is a tremendous way to earn a living. Um, but in order to be, in order to earn a living as an Egyptologist, I think you have to know yourself very well. Um, because in order to do that, you have to be the smartest of the smartest of the smart. Um, there are no like middling level Egyptologists every last one of them I know is just razor sharp. You have to be to succeed in a business like that. Um, some people get university appointments and, you know, that's a great thing. Other people like Mark Lehner, who works with Zahi Hawass at Giza, um, he decided that he did not want to do that for a variety of reasons. And he has been able to raise funds to support his excavations. Um, so that's another business model. Um, there are other people. Another way to do this is to, you know, teach something, anything, I don't know, history in high school. But you have your you have time free between semesters, and you know, then you go off and dig. I mean, there are a number of ways of doing it. Um, but uh, I think the majority of people who study archaeology and who study ancient Egypt in college will probably not do it as a profession. Um, they probably, they will probably end up doing it as a hobby. Now, you know, I, I was very lucky um, because although I didn't do it as a profession, because of the profession I, I ended up going into, um, journalism allowed me to um, to sort of be involved in Egyptology and other parts of archaeology in ways that most people are not able to do. Um, so uh, I would I would say you know also if if you're if you're interested in that I I have a I have a mentee from my college now and. And she's very interested in archaeology, but she has got she has just graduated and she's gotten a job as a financial planner um, with, you know, one of the big national companies. And I have encouraged her to do that um, because she gets a salary. You know, she gets all the benefits. She gets paid vacation. Um, she gets health insurance. Um, and then, you know, she can take her vacation and go off and excavate and not have to worry about fundraising, not have to worry about writing a, a um, grant proposal, not have to worry about you know, writing up a, 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 um, an excavation report. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for showing up as a volunteer and, uh, you know, being involved, but not having the weight of that work sitting on your shoulder. So that's I'm I'm kind of babbling, but it's not it's not sort of a, a, a straight answer for somebody who is young and interested in that sort of thing. I would say on one hand, if you're if you are convinced that you are super smart and you can succeed. Go for it. But, you know, if you think maybe you, you want to make sure you have a paycheck, do something else and take up Egyptology as a hobby. I knew people uh, years and years ago that would do that. They, they would work for six months, make enough money, you know, to, to, to survive and pay bills, and then they take off. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then they come back and then they take off. You know, there's a back and forth thing, but but they thoroughly enjoyed doing it because they, they got to do what they wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can, you know, you can dedicate your vacation time to doing that. I mean, the country of Israel, just for example, makes that very easy because a lot of the excavations are staffed um, by volunteers. And, and Israel really understands that you bring people in, they work on a dig, they get a really tactile connection to mm -hmm. the and to the artifacts, to the history, and they never forget it, and it stays with them. This is the absolutely best PR um, that Israel can do. Um, and so if you want to volunteer on a dig, Israel is one of the places where you can do that. Now, very often it's pay to play, you know, because that's how they fund their digs. But if you have a real life job, you're going on a vacation, you know, instead of spending your money to go on a carnival cruise, spend your money and volunteer for a dig. Absolutely. It'll stay with you, you know, long after the Mai Tais on the cruise ship will. Absolutely. So what's next for you? What's next for me? Well, I am in the middle of another National Geographic project. Um, I am right putting together an atlas of ancient Egypt that is going to come out in magazine form. You know, when you go to the checkout aisle of your supermarket and you see those yellow bordered single themed magazines, well, that's this is what this is, that's what this is going to be. So I'm going to take you from the green Sahara. 10,000 years ago, right through to the Arab conquest. So many, 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 many centuries. Wow. Yeah. So I have three chapters written and, you know, I'm, I'm in the thick of it right now. Fantastic. I want to thank you for coming on this hour blue pie. I'm so, I'm so interested in this stuff. This was great. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. You know, you asked great questions and I love talking to you about this. Fantastic. Maybe in the future we can get you back on to talk more. You know, it's just it's fantastic. I would love it. All Shoot right. Yeah. Email anytime. Sounds good. Well, you have a good holiday, okay? Thank you. You too. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Okay. That was Ann Williams. And I do have her contact information for you guys plus her books and where to get them before we end the show. Tomorrow we're shifting gears. Lynn Hightower is going to be with us, and she's going to be talking about ghosts and the, not, and, and the good and the not so good. So that'll be tomorrow, usual time at 6.30. If you guys are nice to me and you ask me nicely, of course I always do it anyway, I will take an evening and I will share my, my, my Greek and Roman antiquities with you on the air. I have quite a few, and I think you guys might... Might be interested. I even have them date. The, the, the dates have been done on them and everything. I, I, in fact, to give you a little bit of a teaser, I have some small glass vials that they use for perfume and herbs that are intact. So if you guys are interested in that sort of thing, shoot me an email or shoot me a message over at, you know, over on Facebook or um, YouTube and I can do that for you. I can't wait to get her back on. I'm going to definitely get her back on because I, like, like everybody else, I'm fascinated with Egyptian history. Absolutely fascinated. Anyway. If you like the show, uh, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. Also, um, we have a new way to reach us at YouTube, and you can do that by typing in youtube.com forward slash, and then behind the forward slash, type in at, excuse me, at Cal, the little ampersand at, okay, at California Haunts Radio with a large, uh, large <laughs> capital c h and r in there for california haunts radio that'll take you directly to our youtube site also if you are listening and watching from youtube check out the community page i'm putting more and more up there and uh, yeah in fact i'm going to be putting i think excerpts from these interviews that i'm doing starting next week because i, I, I take these and put them on tiktok anyway so i might as well take those little, those little things i'm doing on tiktok and throw them throw them up on that community page as well but anyway, I want to thank everybody for coming. Tomorrow, again, we'll be back on at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And, uh, wow, this was an incredible interview. I don't think I'll ever forget this. And if you have a chance to pick up that book, it, please, you, you should. It, it is spectacular, absolutely spectacular. Okay, 
Now, here's where I uh, have to do my PBS moment. You see that ticker at the bottom? That's because California Haunts does not take any money to do investigations at all. We do it because we, we're out to help people. But the thing is, we still have expenses like everybody else. Gas, hotels, whatever, you know, when we travel. Plus the radio show as well. You know, we've got computers, we've got internet, we've got power, we've got all this stuff going on here. And if something breaks, you know, it has to come out of my pocket and blah, and blah yada, yada, yada. So if you could find it in your heart to help us out a little bit to uh, make ends meet, especially with the radio show, that would be great. PayPal.me at California Haunts. Or if you don't like PayPal, there's, we have a Venmo that's at Cal that, that also is at California Haunts. But anyway, I want to thank you guys. I will see you all tomorrow. And I'm looking forward to it. And here is Anne's information. And I'll read it off for you and the two books of where to get them. Okay, the website is American Research Center in Egypt. Just type that in. It'll pop right up. Anne's information is on there along with the other researchers as well. So, okay. And you've got Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs, and Treasures of Egypt, which is the pictorial book that I have, which I think is absolutely spectacular. And those are available at Amazon.com. Okay, guys, I will see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And for everybody that is working, obviously, you can catch this. Or if you want to catch a replay, you can catch this this evening because it will be floating around on YouTube and floating around on Facebook. All right, see you later. Have a good evening. Have a good day. Ciao.